this episode, we'll continue our discussion about the impact of the emerging technology of pulse field ablation on the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal of Operations and Quality at Vizian and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is a leader in the cardiology field, Dr. Thomas Munger, cardiac electrophysiologist, cardiologist, and chair of the Heart Rhythm Division at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Munger, welcome back. It's great to be back with you, Thomas. Oh, the pleasure is mine, I can assure you. This is fascinating. So can you give us a brief recap? We spoke about what atrial fibrillation is all about, but specifically when it comes to ablation. Yes, so we had talked about atrial fibrillation. Again, there was a surgical history of it. We didn't touch too much on the last episode that started in the 1980s. And then RF ablation and cryoablation came of age in the late 1990s and 2000s for this. And really, the energy source has been static for the last 20, 25 years until we were just starting to talk about a new energy source, electroporation or pulse field ablation, as we closed out our last session. Yeah, I'd like to go back to pulse field ablation because this fascinates me compared to some of the limitations or even complications of radio frequency and cryoenergy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the safety and efficacy involved with pulse field ablation? Sure. So let's talk about what pulse field ablation is initially, and then we can circle back on those questions too. So PFA, actually, we made the full circle. So if you look at the DC ablation we talked about in the last episode, that actually is a form of electroporation with electricity, but it's uncontrolled. It's using very high voltages that you get out of a defibrillator when you created those lesions. And so the current electroporation technology is also using an electric field like DC ablation, but at much lower doses. And so electroporation is basically taking an electric field and creating pores in the cell in a controlled fashion. Much like if you were working at a, say, a computer chip factory, basically the electroporation field is etching little pores through the cell membrane in a very controlled fashion. Unlike RF or cryo, where there's a kind of a halo effect around the lesions that are created with the heat or the freezing, so you have an internal core of cell destruction and then these outer cores where the cell is partially depolarized, but it survives another day. The electroporation is a very discrete energy source. It's kind of like radiation. It's either you're radiating the tissue or you're not. And outside the area where the electricity is being applied, there's no cell destruction at all. So it can be used in a very controlled manner. Also, it doesn't really disrupt the cellular matrix as far as we can tell. So a lot of the proteins and the supporting structures are still there. Additionally, at the doses that have been tested, it doesn't seem to have any effect on certain organs, which are important for us, that can cause problems like the esophagus, which is just adjacent to the left atrium. And thermal injury is either more likely with RF, but it can happen with cryo, can bleed over into that structure as you're ablating the back of the left atrium, cause fistulas, and then subsequent death. Same thing with coronary arteries that you're ablating next to or with the phrenic nerve when you're ablating adjacent to that in the right atrium. So that's where the theoretic advantage of electroporation can come is it's much more controllable. It also doesn't take much time to apply the field. So it really does the cell destruction within just a few beats of the heart. And so, again, theoretically, the procedure can be accomplished much more rapidly than with the conventional energy sources, which do take additional time to have lesions develop. So, 
for an RF lesion, it might take 30 to 60 seconds for it to fully mature. For a cryo lesion, it could take minutes. With these lesions, you can create them in a matter of seconds. So it could make the workflow of the procedure much more rapid with enhanced safety. So I think that's where the advantages of this are going to be. And when you look at the cell lesions, both histologically under the microscope, or if you look at it with our mapping systems after they're completed, if you do a map on the patient several months later, the sharpness and demarcation of where the scar tissue is, is quite dramatic. Are there any differences in outcomes using pulse field ablation versus the other two? Yeah. So again, studies have been published now, at least half a dozen. There was another one that came out on one of the vendors systems here just last month in circulation. And the efficacy looks uh, similar or better. I think one thing that earlier on was of concern was that depending on what type of pulse field ablation settings you were using. And I think this is what needs to be determined going forward. What is the optimal settings? Is it unipolar or bipolar? Is it what energy output in volts you should use? What types of duty cycles, that is the shape of the waveforms that are being used for creating the electric current. These are all variables that can be changed. And these variables dictate the depth of the lesions and I think also the durability. And Early on, there was concerns. You got nice isolations early on, but it wasn't as durable as RF and cryo. And so that's where a lot of the research is going to be in the next several years is which waveforms are going to be optimal for ablating which arrhythmias and which tissues, I think. Right now, I think they look equal to the other ones. I'm still not convinced it's going to be better yet until I see more data in this area. As far as safety, I haven't been aware of an esophageoatrial fistula developed in any of the clinical trials up to this point in time, and that's looking at several thousand patients. And so right there, that would be an improvement over the current data with RF But I think we need more information. And I look forward to hearing from it. So I'm fascinated by this. Is there any advantage in reference to not having to use anticoagulation after using pulse field ablation? There is. And, you know, if you look at the histology, there doesn't seem to be the coagulum that's created uh, with pulse field compared to what you see with RF. And so theoretically, it would make sense that you might not need to anticoagulate the patients as intensively afterwards. And a similar story was made for cryo early on. So again, I think to me, that remains to be determined, but that would be also a a big bonus if we could get away from having to anticoagulate these patients. The coagulum is one factor that plays a role in the anticoagulation afterwards. The recurrences of AFib, particularly in patients who are at risk for having strokes, has been another reason why a lot of times we'll anticoagulate afterwards. It's possible, of course, as other studies come online, looking at the use of appendage closure in conjunction with ablation. If that technology takes off with ablation, that may also impact the need for anticoagulation after ablative work if we're also simultaneously dealing with the atrial appendage. So I certainly see the potential and I look forward to actually following this. So how do facilities prepare themselves for pulse field ablation, Elise? You know, there's the usual things as far as educating your staff, workflows changing that might change how many patients you schedule. It might change the need for anesthesia protocols that you're using. 
certainly if the workflows are shorter and pain is not a part of the whole thing. I mean, we did a lot of RF ablation back in the day without just conscious sedation and went to more general in our practice just because the amount of pain that RF would generate. So if that's not an issue and the procedures can be much shorter, you might change your anesthesia needs locally too. And then, of course, costs. This will imply getting new generators, catheter systems, sometimes new mapping systems in order to deal with this. So that's discussions with hospital administration, your medical chief officers. If you have a new tech committee in your department or division to vet it and discuss it, it's also good to make sure that you talk with all your colleagues about it. One thing I've seen adopting new technology is if you're the lone wolf that wants it and the other six people don't want it, that's also a tough sell. So vetting it amongst the medical people that are going to be using it would be helpful too. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Munger, this was a great discussion. Any final words to our listeners? No, I think we're very excited in the EP field. Anytime something like this that is going to improve safety, improve value, and improve theoretically effectiveness, it's a win-win-win, I think. And it's appropriate to be cautious about new technologies, but this is one that I think will stick at least based on what I've seen up to this point in time. So we're looking forward to getting our hands on this clinically. We've participated in some of the studies, and there's going to be FDA release of some of this technology in the United States, I think, later in the year. So we're looking forward to getting our hands on it. Great job. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. That was terrific. And to our listeners, you can contact Dr. Munger at his email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me in our email, modernpracticepodcast at visioninc.com. We also posted a link in our resource section. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thanks for listening. <laughs>